Welcome to the Flight Safety Detectives. Hosts John Golia and Greg Fife, two of the world's most respected aviation safety experts, talk all things related to aviation and aerospace. This podcast and the Flight Safety Detectives YouTube channel are brought to you by the Professional Aviation Maintenance Association, PAMA, and Avemco Insurance, a world-class provider of aviation insurance and your one-stop for all general aviation insurance needs. Get a customized quote at avemco.com or give them a call at 888-879-0389. Tell them you're a listener of the show and receive a 5% discount. Now it's time to buckle up because it's wheels up for the latest episode of Flight Safety Detectives. Well, hello, John. It's another episode of Flight Safety Detectives. We're going to have a great show today because we have an honored guest with us today, a new fresh face, um, one that uh, a lot of people may have seen when they watch TV, especially uh, the international type shows. So uh, we're going to be talking to uh, Jeffrey Thomas today uh, about a variety of things, but uh, primarily the Netflix show Downfall, which was basically an expose on Netflix about uh, Boeing's rise and fall, if you will, uh, really centered around the 737 MAX. So uh, before we get to to Jeffrey, I just wanted to say, it's good to see you uh, this early in the morning for us because Jeffrey's down in uh, Perth, Australia, and uh, it's the evening. So I will make that introduction right now. We're, uh, we're honored to have you, Jeff. Uh, you're a, you've got a storied career. You've been um, in the aviation business uh, in a variety of different roles. Uh, you were editor-in-chief, as I recall, of Air Transport uh, Magazine. And uh, uh, right now you, uh, you are the CEO of AirlineRatings.com. And uh, you and I have had the opportunity over the years to, uh, to exchange information on the big stories that make international news when it uh, comes to aviation accidents and incidents. And um, I always learn a lot from uh, your writings and of course, the trading of information and, and fact finding, if you will. And, um, and, and between John and I with flight safety detectives in both of our careers, we all deal in fact. And that's uh, one of the things that I think uh, gives you a lot of credibility worldwide. You're a, an award-winning writer um, for that very reason. And uh, we're honored to have you on the show and uh, part of the Flight Safety Detectives cadre. Thank you very much indeed. It's uh, great to be here uh, from down under. It's uh, evening time here and uh, uh, yeah, it's, it's great to be on board. Thank you very much. Well, one of the... Uh, I'm sorry, John, go ahead. I was going to just say welcome, extending my welcome in oh, relief because you, now that you're on the show, maybe Greg won't beat me up so much about my roommates, <laughs> Oval and Wilbur. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that's, that's one thing I do with John because uh, the, any, anything older than John, it's called dirt. So um, it's, uh, it's always uh, an entertaining show when, uh, when I get on a roll with John. But um, one of the things that, uh, that we've talked about uh, offline and, um, 
and, and really is a concern for those of us in this business who are fact-based investigators, writers, reporters, is, uh, is this show that came out in uh, February about uh, Boeing. And Netflix put a lot of energy into it. They got a lot of people to talk on that particular show. And they went through really a, uh, a storyline in the front half of the show about the 737 MAX accidents. Uh, they talked about some of the facts that were developed both in the Lion Air and Ethiopian uh, Airways accidents. But as, a, as an investigator, somebody that's close to uh, the process and of course uh, dissecting the facts, conditions and circumstances, um, I was very disappointed with the way they presented it, but not surprised because they were making this storyline about Boeing. And, um, and John and I have talked about it on this show. I've preached about it on, uh, on a number of channels when, uh, when I've been interviewed all over, over the world with regard to um, the, the accident process. And then, of course, uh, the facts of the accident. And that was that, oh, my gosh, you know, let's go after the sexy story. And the sexy story in this case was yes, the, the accident was the catalyst, but the sexy story was this quote, love-in between the US FAA and Boeing and self-certification and a variety of other things that really not only confused the issue and, and muddied the waters, but got people thinking in the wrong direction with regard to how aircraft manufacturers work what the process is and the interaction is between a regulatory authority and the manufacturer. And the fact that these uh, designated um, uh, representatives that operate on behalf of the certifying authority, uh, even though they are paid by the manufacturer, um, they still have a responsibility to that regulatory authority and that this is not unique uh, worldwide. Um, Airbus has a similar type program, Embraer, all of the major manufacturers, um, because their, their respective government agencies don't have the manpower to, uh, to stack them in the manufacturing facilities to, uh, to do what people think they should be doing uh, with regard to uh, regulatory oversight. So we have a lot to cover and unpack, but uh, I wanted to get your thoughts Jeff, on the, on the Netflix show itself, uh, John and I, um, uh, we talked about it, and that was really one of the things that we wanted to, to do a show on, was to, to hold people accountable that if you're going to tell the story, that's fine, but make sure you're objective with it and, and balanced with it, and don't cherry pick some factoids to build a, a sensationalized story to, uh, to open up a show like this. Look, look, absolutely, Greg. And, you know, my comments, I'd like to start off by quoting Tom Hanks, who played Mr. Rogers in that uh, terrific film um, a couple of years ago. And he said, the default position of an awful lot of media is cynicism. If it sells, it's a magnificent way to begin a, a public foray. We're going to blow the lid off something. Uh, and that really... In, to me, is, is the way a lot of media has treated this particular tragedy 
the, the, the dual tragedy of the two accidents. It's all been about Boeing and there's been virtually no real dissection of the role of Lion Air and Ethiopian uh, in, in these two terrible, terrible tragedies that cost 346 lives. And certainly we're talking about the Netflix. Uh, the, the introduction uh, talks to the, the wife of the captain of the plane. Uh, it doesn't even begin to uh, touch on the co-pilot of the plane uh, because the captain was in fact controlling the aircraft. Uh, he, was, he was able to, to continue the flight. Um, but when he handed the aircraft across to the co-pilot, uh, that's when everything went completely awry. And one, of the, and, and one of the things that's been completely missed in all of the discussion um, uh, about the, uh, the co-pilot is his, his training report. And one of the, on one of the exercises, um, the trainer noted, application exercise for stall recovery is difficult due to the wrong concept of the basic principle of a stall recovery at high or low level. If you're a pilot and you don't understand the concept of a stall, you shouldn't be in the you shouldn't be anywhere near the aeroplane. It's exactly. it's a fundamental of flying. Yet none of that gets coverage in this downfall program, and that's just the start of all the missing bits um, that that permeate uh, the first half of the show. And John and I talked about that, and um, and that is really the the basis when you look at accident investigation and telling the complete story. You need to understand that interaction, and there are a lot of unanswered questions. We brought it up when we talked about the Indonesian, the NTSC's final report on Lion Air six ten, and all of the gaps and all of the the. Uh, basically twisting of the facts or, or uh, manipulating of the facts to build the storyline against Boeing. Um, you know, one of the things that John brought up, and, and we'll talk about it here in a second, but that airplane had been flying around sick for almost 30 days prior to the accident, yet that was never brought up, never, and like you said, Jeff, one of the things is that nobody ever really talked about Lion Air as an organization and their philosophy. And when you put a sick airplane back on the line for 30 days and you ask pilots to fly it, especially when uh, they flew it from Bali back to Jakarta on one of those flights um, because they supposedly couldn't fix it in, uh, in Bali and the stick shaker is going for two hours on that flight. It, it, that makes no sense to me. No, it would, it would never happen in Australia. It would never happen in the United States. It wouldn't happen in many, many jurisdictions. Uh, it, it, it's, it speaks terribly of Lion Air. And then when you add to the fact that the particular incident wasn't written up properly, then you add to the fact that the part that they used to replace the faulty angle of attack sensor was, was, was a non-Boeing non um, part. Uh, it, it just adds up to a litany of failures which you, you sort of sit back and say, how can an airline that is IOSA compliant had passed an IOSA audit, how can it do this? Uh, this is so against what IOSA, which is the International Operational Safety Audit done by IATA, that this th throws that completely out the door. 
You know, it's frustrating when you, when you look at all the press reports and the talking heads always talk about the chain of events leading up to accidents, except this accident. Yep. Nobody talked about the chain of events in this accident because they didn't want to, to get into that 29 days of the poor maintenance. The on the 30th day, the captain uh, and the events of captain, you know, the, the failure to retard the throttles, basic flying skills. You know, you got this airplane at low flight with full throttles. Give me a break. That airplane had to be shaking all over the place. Uh, it just it just defies good journalism that they disregarded all of those events that they were aware of and never mentioned them. And they and and again, you know, the Lion Air report, um, there was a lot of information in there that supports the fact that MCAS didn't cause this accident. Was there a contributing factor? Yes, but it was in the last 52 seconds of that flight. And as you said, Jeff, um, that captain, I mean, John and I went through systematically and put a timeline together. That captain had the airplane. As soon as the trim started rolling, he would con uh, counteract the, the trim. It would reset MCAS. Um, but there were things that were never really even discussed. And people that I know, both at Boeing and at FAA, when I brought it up, like they got a configuration warning right at liftoff on that flight. Now, the question is, why would they get a configuration warning right at liftoff? Well, nobody ever talked about that. Nobody ever identified it, and the Indonesians never addressed it. That was the start of that particular sequence that should have cued the pilots that, hey, something's going on here. We got a sick airplane. Let's go back. Um, yep. I mean, there's a, a lot, but when you look at the way Netflix presented at least that that particular accident, um, like you said, they didn't really get into those backstories, those factual backstories that form the uh, the basis for really getting to the heart. Yes, it's a tragic accident. Yes, we lost the airplane. Yes, the pilots had some level of, of uh, control issue, but when you look at management, you look at management philosophy, you look at maintenance philosophy, the fact that they, like you said, uh, they went out and bought a non-standard part. All they had to do was go to Boeing and call them and say, hey, we got a problem with, uh, with this AOA sensor. Send us a new one. Nobody ever talked about why they didn't do that. Indeed. And, and uh, um, it, it, it just beggars belief. Uh, that uh, of the things they did, and, and you talk about a series of contributing factors. There were so many contributing factors to this; uh, it almost defies belief, um, and uh, it's deeply, deeply troubling um, uh, performance by a you know a, a large airline in in Indonesia. Yep, and then and then when they uh, presented the information about Ethiopia. Now, there's a lot of stories that, uh, that have come to light. Um, the Ethiopians still technically have not issued their final, final report. They put out their interim final report that John and I have uh, looked through and started to examine. And we were, we were going to dissect that report like we did with the Lion Air report. But the, uh, the Ethiopians have said, well, this is just the interim final. 
Well, there were a lot of causal statements and that kind of stuff in that interim final. I'm wondering what the final final report's going to look like. But there are a lot of facts, a lot of errors. And one of the first things I questioned, as a lot of other people did, was how do you have a 28-year-old captain with over 8,000 hours of flying time? That doesn't happen. And, um, and now there is information that has come to light with regard to the fact that when pilots jump seat as observers, they are logging that as flight time, which will explain or could explain the fact that you have all these pilots that supposedly have all these thousands of hours at a very young age, when in fact, none of that's flight time, it's observation time, but they've counted it as flight time. You know, I love that because I probably have five or six hundred hours in the DC nine and, and three or four hundred hours in the seven three seven. I I can go out and, and ask to get typed. Yep. <laughs> Using yeah. that as a yardstick, I mean, really, I flew in both of those cockpits so much that that I was so comfortable that I could go to sleep up there. And those yeah. seats are not comfortable at all. Yeah, it was just it, it was just disheartening to to see the presentation because that's what opened up the show. So now the viewer has this, you know, this feeling now that it's bad Boeing, bad Boeing, and and you know they they put these people in a position of jeopardy when in fact when you look at it as an accident investigator, you take all the emotion out. You take all of that other fluff out and you look at the facts, yep. you can see that chain of event, that causal chain of event resides in the cockpit with those pilots. Airplanes are airplanes. They, they all fly the same. The fact is, is that when you dissect the, the role of MCAS in these accidents, it isn't as prominent as was portrayed in that Netflix special or even that resides within you know, the worldwide aviation community where people yep. are pointing the finger at the manufacturer. Indeed, and it, it goes, you know, there's, a, there's, a more, there's even another holistic view of this, and that is the drive by all manufacturers to improve safety in the cockpit by simplifying systems. Um, you know, and an Airbus check and training captain, uh, colleague of mine who's recently retired from Airbus, he was based in Singapore. He said to me, only 10% of the pilots who come through our training facility have the ability to understand every single system in the aeroplane. And so, you know, the, the drive has been to simplify. So, with, when we have an engine fire, um, there's two or three procedures, three or four procedures is, is all that's required to, to, to put the fire out and then you land the aircraft. Whereas 30 years ago, it might have been 20 procedures. And, and as a captain, a Qantas captain said to me, we don't want our cockpit to look like a Christmas tree on New Year's Eve <laughs> when something goes wrong. We don't want bells and whistles and sirens, and we just want some very simple, tight procedures to fix a problem. Um, and that simplification, you know, it manifests itself with this MCAS system, where they said, well, the philosophy was, okay, um, 
if if there's something wrong here, it'll manifest itself as a runaway stab trim. So on the 737NG, there's four things that will cause a runaway stab trim. In the MAX, there's five. Um, and it's a memory item. If you've got a runaway stab trim, there's three procedures to shut it down. But in the case of uh, Lion Air, they didn't know. They didn't know. It was, it's a memory item, and they simply didn't know. The, the captain flying the day before, the, 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 the captain is an, uh, who was an observer the day before, knew what to do and switched the system off. The two pilots flying from Bali to, to Jakarta did not. And, but the, the issue here, it appears to be that both Boeing and Airbus and then Embraer and Bombardier, the, 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 the design philosophy appears to be flawed in as much that they're assuming a certain level of training of the pilots. That is not the case. It may be the case in Toulouse, it may be the case in Seattle and Montreal and Sao Paulo, but it's not the case in so many countries of the world. And there's been a major reset across the globe about, okay, our pilots may not be as well-trained as we first thought. Um, so it's been a watershed for the whole industry um, on, on the design of cockpits and, and what we need to do. And, yes. and that... The, the manufacturers have long assumed that their flight crews and their maintenance crews yes, knew yes. what they were doing. And the, this Lion Air accident really cast a shadow on both of those areas. You know, when I look at the, the maintenance issues uh, in those, those 29 days before this accident, I don't know a mechanic in the United States that would have released that airplane on day 29 or on day one. That airplane was wherever it was, was going to be home for a while. But uh, in other parts of the world, they just keep the metal moving. And, and you brought up a, a good point, and that is training. And, um, and John and I, of course, have talked about that, um, that all training isn't created equally, that people and the training philosophies are not created equally. And those are the kinds of stories that I think that if you're going to tell it, like in this Netflix presentation, then get into the training at Lion Air, get into the training at Ethiopian. And it's funny because the, C the CEO of Ethiopian uh, Airways had, uh, had talked about this almost right after the accident about how well-trained, how outstanding their pilot corps was. Yet, if you look at the things that uh, make it into Ab Herald, but uh, only a select few of us read it, um, you'd see that uh, Ethiopia doesn't have uh, you know, that quote, stellar pilot crew that uh, the CEO talked about. They had two different flight crews try to land at an airport that was still under construction. If your training is that good, your operational discipline is that great, and your pilots are stellar, then how is it that you have two separate flight crews making the same mistake? Um, you know, it's things like that. And those are the things that form the basis. And and in this Netflix show, I just think that it started off bias and it, it, it really inflicted or influenced the bias of the viewer by the way they portrayed those two accidents so that they could lead into the second half of that uh, program, which was getting into the whole change of philosophy that Boeing went through upon acquiring 
McDonnell Douglas. And I think that in and of itself, they didn't do a good job telling the real history. Um, uh, like I said, John's been around since uh, the Wright brothers. So he's watched that evolution, if you will, with Boeing. But, you know, in talking to other folks in the industry, there was, I mean, Boeing was uh, at, at the top of their game. But then, of course, when they acquired McDonnell Douglas, that seemed to, uh, to impart their uh, a different philosophy that led to a, what this show was called the downfall. But is it really a downfall or the, you know, just a, a different path that they took that may not have been the best path uh, for an organization like a Boeing? Look, I, I, I think the, the acquisition of McDonnell Douglas um, in one sense was a good thing because it got them some military hardware like the C-17, the F-15 Eagle, the F-18, Apache helicopter, Delta rockets. It got them a lot of things they didn't have. But along with that came the management and, and, and the shareholders. And that was, that was a serious issue. I mean, and if we go back a little bit in history, um, when McDonald merged with Douglas uh, back in 1967, um, they, they produced, out of that merger, they produced one new commercial airplane, the DC-10. After that, they did not produce one new commercial airplane for 30 years. Yeah, and so for thirty years they just de they just did derivatives, and interestingly enough, their lack of spending on R and D uh, in '69 they won the contract for the F fifteen Eagle, but after that they only produced out of their own design shops one new military airplane that was the C seventeen because the F eighteen is a Northrop design, the Harrier they produced was a British aerospace design, um, so. Their, the lack of R&D uh, and the focus on profits uh, meant that by 1997, McDonnell Douglas was just a shell of a company that did have some legacy projects. Uh, and then going into the merger with Boeing, um, that philosophy continued. Um, and so with the 787, uh, you had a situation where they insisted, this is the new management of Boeing, which was McDonnell Douglas, insisted on spreading the risk as far as you possibly could go, uh, which, which resulted in the um, terrible delays with the 787 program that lasted three years um, and some of the problems with the 787 program and also resulted in Boeing not going ahead with a new, totally new 737 replacement, but another derivative. Um, so it's had a devastating impact on Boeing that Coming out the last couple of years, uh, I believe that Boeing has got back to its roots, got back to its engineering roots, um, and I think we're going to see a different Boeing going forward from now. You know, it's interesting you raise that R&D question, because, you know, there was a period in the 90s where we had a lot of MD-11s that were crashing, and it was deemed to be software issues because it's a fly-by-wire airplane. But they never, never addressed any of that, Douglas did. It was only until after Boeing's engineering department got a hold of that airplane that they fixed those problems and made it into a pretty good airplane. But prior to that, Douglas just was asleep at the switch. 
Well, one of the reasons too is they reduced the amount of area on the horizontal stabilizer to save on weight. And that, that, that impacted the controllability of the airplane uh, on landing there. And most of the accidents were landing accidents. Yeah, and, and they, uh, they, they were more unique. They were moving fuel all the time between the tail and uh, in the middle of the airplane for CG issues because that airplane, one of the criticisms was it couldn't meet, meet the range requirements. And a lot of it, they started playing with the CG by moving fuel back and forth. And, and it was just, it, was, it became cumbersome. Um, it turned out to be a decent cargo airplane for the major cargo carriers. But uh, as far as a passenger carrier, uh, people didn't like it. And in fact, I did the first MD-11 event uh, involving China Eastern Airlines when they first acquired the MD-11. Uh, they had a, uh, an in-flight slap deployment at 33,000 feet that ended up uh, putting the airplane on its nose and the pilots got the airplane into a PIO, pilot-induced oscillation, and ended up uh, injuring a number of people, making an emergency landing in Shimia, Alaska. Um, but we found it was a design issue. They had combined the flap and the slat handle um, from the DC-10, which had two separate handles. They put it into one, and uh, we found some design issues with that. So all of these backstories, these are the stories that really form the, uh, the basis for understanding the complexities of aviation, the complexities of, of what manufacturers must go through, of course, the challenges. And, and I think that the, the Netflix show had an opportunity to enlighten people to more of those aspects than what they did, but it was obvious that wasn't their intent with the show. It was, let's, let's poke Boeing, let's poke the bear and show how bad they are and, uh, and then we'll also, you know, slap the FAA for not having as much oversight as they should have had. Well, that, that, that FAA situation is extraordinary. I mean, a lot of the heat has come from Congress. And, you know, how could you possibly do this? But in fact, it was the Congress of the United States starving the FAA of funds. And it was their push to, to move the oversight and, and the certification um, to the manufacturers. So it's, it's, it's really extraordinary the way this thing has turned around. And what, one of the other things we must remember, though, is this same oversight, certification oversight, uh, certified the 777, certified the 747, uh, and a variety of aircraft that have been perfectly, um, have performed perfectly in service. So, you know, it's not a totally flawed system at all. It just reflects the fact that you know Boeing and Airbus and other manufacturers, they have the expertise, they have the experts, they have the, the top aerospace engineers, uh, uh, avionics people, computer people who really do understand what they're doing. Uh, and that's why one of the drivers of, of moving that certification to the manufacturers was all about. Yeah. You know, interesting uh, with the engineer that took all the, the blame uh, for the max because of the emails and yeah. that court case was just recently settled and uh what two hours greg yep Jur the jury took two hours to to uh clear all the charges against him yep so he was convicted well, in the convicted in the press 
But when it finally got to court, in, in less than two hours, the jury decided that he wasn't to blame. And one of the things, too, is, you know, we, we had this 245-page congressional inquiry into the MAX came out in 2020. One of the things that absolutely uh, blew me away was that in this report, they were referencing as their source of information tabloids, the Daily Mail in England, and they never once um, uh, referenced Aviation Week and space technology. Sean Broderick and Guy Norris, the two real Max experts who did countless stories about what was really, really going on, they never referenced them once. And, and you sort of think, well, you know, the Congress of the United States, um, they should be producing the very, very best reports there are. And a lot of these media outlets just take this report and I think the, um, one of the opening statement of, of the congressional inquiry was there's a tremendous financial pressure on Boeing to beat the A320neo, resulted in extensive efforts to cut costs and maintain schedule. And that was based on a New York Times story, go, 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 to beat the A320neo. And the reality is the 737 MAX was the longest had the longest development time of any Boeing airplane ever. I mean, it was about five years that, that they built, Boeing built the 747 in three uh, from scratch. The, yeah. the 737 MAX was a derivative. It took five years and, and the pacing item was the engines. So there was no rush. There was no frantic, you know, battle to keep it on schedule because they couldn't get the engines for five years. That was the pacing item. And so it, you know, you you wonder why some of these tabloids or one of these some of these newspapers get the story wrong, if the Congress of the United States doesn't get it right, um, and quotes the wrong people, then you know who's to blame? Because you know, the facts. I'm, I'm smiling inside. I know, Greg. I'm smiling inside because you're all looking at two guys who made multiple trips to D.C. to meet with that staff and to set the record straight and everything that we brought with us and everything we taught them about vanished. Well, it went you know, into a black that, hole. And that's interesting you mentioned that, John, because I know that Greg has had this problem and I've had this problem. The narrative now around the globe is Boeing was at fault. That's it. Now, I've been on various TV programs and I know that Greg has as well talking about the max and if you dare say anything other than boeing was at fault the interviewer who's talking to the supposed expert starts criticizing you and says yeah. says how can you say that yep. you know boeing was at fault so it's almost as though it's a lost cause in a sense uh, out there in the wider world i mean within the industry we know where a lot of the fault lies and we know a lot of the the issues but in the public arena the narrative is boeing's at fault that's it jeff it's because facts aren't sexy no they they, they, absolutely they are turning these <laughs> sexy stories and john and i were very critical when uh when those congressional hearings were taking place one because we were frustrated because we did spend a lot of time up on the hill trying to educate them and and put all of these facts in context it was it, when you look at it in hindsight, 
it was, you know, okay, we'll appease these guys. We'll take this information, but they aren't speaking the narrative we want to hear. And then they yeah. get Captain Sully and a few other people that uh, John and I know, and I know you, you know them as well, to go up there and spew stuff that is not fact-based. And, um, you know, when it came to uh, Sullenberger talking about training programs, come on, that's, that's so, that is so lame. And, and yeah. others, I mean, that wasn't the story. And, yep. But that was the narrative that Congress wanted to build so that they could support what you just talked about. And that was, they took this sensational stuff, they were gonna poke FAA, they were gonna go after them. And, um, and that was the story, but that really wasn't. Um, no. And like you said, Boeing has been successful. I don't know how many derivatives of each model aircraft they've put out over the years that have been successful. And, and you know, okay, there are, I mean, right now, Airbus has issues with the NEO. They got issues with the A350 and, you know, the carbon uh, composite materials they're building their fuse, but nobody hears about that. Why? Because they haven't been involved in a crash and the spotlight hasn't been put on them. Yeah. Yeah, Airbus went to school on the on the, the Max accidents because they have that similar system on the airplanes. And I I my friends that work for Airbus have told me that Airbus dispatched teams around the country to go check their airplanes and make sure the training uh, on those systems was up to up to uh, par. Yeah. Because they, they yeah. too know, like others know, that in parts of the world, pilots are not trained the same as they are in the uh, the West. You know, there's a reason why there was no problems with with uh, hundreds of maxes in the U.S. or in Europe. There's a reason why, and nobody has compared the training syllabus that is done in the, in the U.S. and Europe with what is done in Asia. The time spent, the basic knowledge, nobody has done that. Well, the other thing too is, you know, if if something is a memory item, that's what it's supposed to be—a memory item. You don't need to look up a manual. Um, which is what the captain of the Lion Air plane was doing. He pulled out the manual. That's why he gave the plane to the co-pilot. But this was a memory item. Um, and so it's like a fire drill. You just, you absolutely instinctively know what to do. And it's not as though the system was hidden, as some people suggest, you know, this dark secret hidden. You've got a runaway stab trim right beside your, um, your right or left knee, depending on who you are. And it's noisy. It's irritating. And... It's it's just yep. there. You know yep. exactly what the problem is if you know a memory item. And runaway stab trim is a memory item. Yeah, and it's it, it's. I mean, it it just defies logic. But John and I have talked about this. I preach it all the time. I know you you know it, uh, Jeff. And that is the fact that there are a lot of pilots around the world that know how to fly. There are very few that understand flying, and in parts of the world. Um, like Indonesia, because I spent a lot of time over there working on Silk Air and got to know that yeah. culture and know those pilots and everything else. They're very good at going in a sequence or following a checklist. But if something happens that isn't on a checklist or isn't in a, you know, uh, uh, in a systematic process, they don't know what to do. They're either very black or very white. And, yeah. and, and if it happens in the middle, they don't know how to handle it. And like you said, why would you pull the manual out? He had the airplane under control. 
fly it and bring it back home. Don't fly away from the airport. Well, we've also, I've also spoke to several training facilities and I won't mention their names uh, in the Asian area. And, you know, I asked them who their clients are and I asked them about some other airlines and they say, no, our training is too expensive. Uh, they do their own. And so you start to wonder. Um, and a couple of the training captains that I've spoken to, uh, they tell me tales of pilots coming through. 51% um, pass mark is fine. That's just fine. That's wow. okay. And some of them, they fail. They go back to the airline. The airline comes, comes back to them and says, we want these people passed. Mm. So, you know, there are some, there are some serious issues um, not just in Asia, in other parts like Pakistan as well, yeah. uh, where the training, you know, globally needs to be harmonised. The, the whole standard needs to be lifted. Otherwise, we're going to have more of these sorts of terrible tragedies um, uh, occurring, uh, even though aeroplanes themselves are inherently safer than they've ever been. We still have these black swan events. And uh, then we have a situation where they have no idea what to do. And John, you know, we've talked about the fact that it, that kind of philosophy uh, doesn't just reside in the cockpit when it comes to training and, and expertise. I mean, uh, you've got maintenance folks that, again, they have the same issues and, you know, they lack the training, they lack the skills. Um, and, and then when, when it comes to, well, we got to get a replacement part. Well, let's just call Boeing. No, let's buy it in Miami, you know, yeah. over the Internet. Yeah, mechan most mechanics don't have control of that. You go to the, the formal uh, supply system and there's a buyer someplace that it will buy that part for you if you don't have it in stock. And they'll search on the uh, what they call the ILS, which is a, a locator system for parts, and they'll find it the cheapest place they can and uh, have it shipped in. So can't get any it, cheaper than going to Boeing and say, Hey, I got a brand new airplane. I need a replacement part. Yeah. <laughs> hey, it probably would have been freed up from Boeing. Yeah. yeah. So, but you know, those are the kinds of things. And the other thing uh, we've heard Jeff is that um, with these airlines, kind of like what you were talking about with pilot training and the expense um, is, is the same with buying additional equipment on your airplane. You're spending, oh you know, you know, X amount of dollars, 50 to $100 million on an airplane, and you're not going to spend an extra 10000 or $100,000 on a second AOA probe when it's been offered to you, or some other safety system that for that, for that, you know, price that you're going to amortize over the cost of the airplane and the life of the airplane and everything else. Why wouldn't you err on the side of putting more safety into the airplane rather than less look indeed it's 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 there's two sides to this you've got some airlines around the world that don't put window shades in their cabin because it saves them money they don't put a seat back pocket onto their seats because it saves them money uh, and then you've got top of the line airlines uh, like Qantas Air New Zealand for instance and they want to put some new safety feature in the cockpit they still have to do the business case to get ticked off by the accountants. Um, so, and I remember years and years ago, um, a, a very, very well-known engineering chief of Cathay Pacific, Stuart John, 
he was a legend um, in, in the industry. He yeah. sure was. And I was talking to him about TCAS and had just been introduced. And he said to me, it's a gimmick that pilots will love. And I thought, I cannot believe that he is saying that. You know, it, it, he, was an, he was an extraordinary man, a giant in the industry, um, but he thought TCAS was a gimmick. Um, and uh, so, you know, I, I believe that all safety features should be standard on aeroplanes. It should be taken out of the hands of accountants um, uh, and, and the board of airlines. They should be made standard like they are on the 787. It's just standard. It's just everything, every feature is standard. And that's the way it should be. And that's the way we need to move. Well, you know, in the early years with the Airbus, early and middle years with the Airbus, uh, flight data recorders, I was thinking of an example, flight data recorders. Airbus had uh, hundreds of parameters on their, on their recorders long before anybody else did. And it was standard. And at Airbus philosophy, and talking to, to some folks at Airbus, I was told that people, airlines had come to them and wanted the, the, the minimum parameters that the government required. And Airbus said, sure, we'll be glad to build the airplane for you. It's going to cost you $75,000 more because our airplanes come standard with this recorder. Yeah. And that's that sort of just ended the discussion. But yeah. Boeing's, Boeing was just the opposite. And, and Embraer also was just the opposite. They came with the minimum required by regulation. And if you wanted a more robust recorder, you had to pay for it. Yeah. Bombardier too. I, I worked for a charter company and I convinced the owners that as they were buying a, a, a new Learjet to get a decent recorder on it. And Bombardier came back to them and said $75,000 to put a, put the recorder on. And it's what did, it was a mostly digital airplane already. So it's, you know, if they get, they're all set in their ways sometimes. Yeah, indeed. indeed. Jeff, you've got, you know, you've got your fingers uh, on the pulse around the world in the airline business. And of course, uh, you know, I value what you write when, uh, when you're writing about a variety of different subjects. You know, we've had a couple of recent events, uh, of course, China Eastern and the 737. Um, there are a lot of rumors floating around. There are some exposés on uh, YouTube with regard to um, two real different philosophies. One, of course, an intentional act. Um, I was involved with Silk Air, so I've seen that before. We saw it with Egypt Air 990 and, and others throughout history. And, and in these intentional acts, do have some telltale signs um, that tip the investigator off that, yep, there are too many similarities to be anything but this particular type of event. But then there's also some information out there that uh, the 737-800 may have been involved in a significant tail strike. And of course, uh, if you have a bad repair, um, we've seen this too in the past, especially with China Air. John and I talked about that and uh, JAL and others where you've now uh, had an aft pressure bulkhead that's let go, which compromises the structure, uh, especially the tail section of the airplane. What are you hearing uh, through your channels uh, as far as where the Chinese may be taking this? They, they have 
several folks from the NTSB helping them only specifically, which is very curious to me because I spent a lot of time at the NTSB running around the world as an accredited rep working with the Chinese and others where we had unfettered access. But I've heard that they put limitations on exactly what the NTSB was there to, to do. And that was to help them with the recorders and nothing else, which again, I, I find that very strange. Are you hearing anything uh, with regard to that particular event? Well, yes, the, 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 I mean, the fact that the, the debris was found, debris was found 10 kilometers away from the actual crash site. Um, it's about seven miles away from the actual crash site. Uh, certainly leads one to think that there's been some event that's precipitated the, 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 um, the plane going down. Um, and the vision we've seen, and I've seen several different angles to it, um, it seems to show that the tail is missing from this aircraft. Um, although, you know, that can't, that's not conclusive, but it appears as though the tail may be missing. Whether, the after, whether a failure of the after-pressure bulkhead uh, caused that or whether there was a small explosion of some kind, uh, a bomb-type situation, um, we, we just don't know. But certainly the after-pressure bulkhead is, is a smoking gun, if you like. Um, and then the, uh, you're absolutely right. The, the, the profile of the, the descent uh, appears as though you know, it could be a human factors issue, uh, as we like to say, um, uh, possibly uh, involving um, uh, one of the pilots. Uh, and there's various stories going around about that as well. Um, uh, but as far as the Chinese investigation is concerned, you know, I, I think that they're going to try and make this a, a really good transparent investigation. I mean, the reality is if the NTSB is downloading the cockpit voice recorder and the information we get is not what was downloaded, then one way or another, it's going to get out and it'll make them look very, very silly. Um, so I'm, I'm really hoping that they do do a very transparent investigation and give the NTSB. And I would imagine the BEA of France, because I'm sure they'll be involved at one stage because of the, the CFM engine, yeah. um, that uh, we will get um, a, a good report. You know, there's one other piece that's not mentioned very much. And that is that there's an airworthiness directive out against some of the structure back in the tail, a required inspection because of cracks that have suddenly appeared and seem to propagate at a uh, unusually high rate. So it's, there is an AD note out on that and, uh, and nobody has mentioned that so far. Yeah, so when you look at uh, these kinds of things, you know, that is, that is really, the importance of having a thorough and methodical investigation. But as you said, Jeff, it, it's all about transparency as well, because that's where the industry is going to learn. Good, bad, or indifferent. If this happens to be an intentional act, it's an unfortunate event. Um, we've, you know, we tried to learn some lessons from the Silk Air event and the Egypt Air 990 event. Um, but, you know, when, when you look at that, Pilots are humans. You are going to have those uh, those rogue pilots for whatever reason. Of course, we're going to have you back on the show because 
uh, off air in our discussion about MH370, we definitely want to spend time with you and walk through the, the entire litany of all of the uh, possibilities and all of the junior experts out there, the junior investigators who have come up with their own storyline as to what happened with MH370, other than the fact that it's sitting on an island and they're going to make a new Gilligan's Island TV show out of that that particular event. But um, you being down in that part of the world have a great uh, understanding of uh, the multiple storylines and a lot of the players who have uh, been in attack mode of the Australian government, the Malaysian government, and in their efforts to uh, try and find this aircraft. So we are definitely going to invite you back for that particular show, because I think that uh, we've gotten a lot of requests for us to talk about MH370. And, um, and I think that with your knowledge and, um, and some of the things that we've learned, uh, that'll be a, a really good backstory type accident to, uh, to, uh, to discuss. And in fact, we use, I use the wrong word all the time. We don't know if it was an accident. Uh, if no. it was an intentional act, then it's not an accident. And, no. uh, and so those are the kinds of things that uh, I think that I would love to talk about with you because uh, you are in the know down there. And, and I think that, again, the world still finds this a mystery, just like the Amelia Earhart disappearance. And they, they want to put some at least semblance of, of reality and and logic to what possibly happened. So we'll definitely have you on the show. I wanted to close uh, real quick with the fact that uh, we are honored that uh, you took the time to, uh, to become part of the flight safety detective family. Um, I value uh, you. your friendship and of course your expertise and, and you bring that reality to the, to the reporting. And I think that for those of uh, our listeners and viewers who are, who know you or don't know you, uh, they should be plugged in because uh, you bring a very solid um, and and fact based uh, perspective to a lot of these aviation subjects that we talk about, and you don't build that sexy story. You use the facts to build the storyline as it should be built. So uh, I appreciate your efforts and of course uh, your expertise when it comes to uh, to accidents and incidents and trying to explain to the flying public what is fact and what is fiction so john i'm going to uh, i'm going to let you uh, say goodbye to our guest but uh, before i do jeff i, I again i can't uh, thank you enough for taking the time and uh, i just want to say that uh, anytime you want to talk you are more than welcome to reach out and become part of the flight safety detective YouTube channel. Um, Thank you very much. Thanks. So. <laughs> and let me leave you with just one little factoid about MH370. There's been 130 books written about the loss of MH370. Mm. 130. How many of them are factual? <laughs> uh, the, the best one, the best one, is the psychic's guide to the loss of MH370. I think that's the most honest. Uh, the psychic's <laughs> guide. I love that. I'm going to have to definitely put that on my reading list. So yeah. are, you tell, you, are you telling me that M370 was the full employment act for writers? 
Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> wow. Well, John, um, it's been, I, I think, a great episode of Flight Safety Detectives. Um, we now have a new expert to, uh, to chime in with, uh, with you and me to keep us both straight when uh, we start straying with the facts. So uh, we're very honored. But uh, as I always do, I am going to leave you with the last words. Well, two things. First one is, you know, we strive to get this show to 30 or 40 minutes. And here we are, we're running at about an hour and it has gone by in the blink of an eye because mm. the discussion has been very fascinating, very, very informative for our audience. So thank you, Jeff, for all of all that what you've done to make this show a success. And to our listeners, I'd like to remind everybody that before you go flying, you need to do a good pre-planning session. And when you get out to the airport, you need to do it again. And then when you get out to your airplane, you need to do a very thorough pre-flight inspection. And as part of my work, trying to figure out what we can say about all of that, I've discovered that there's very little guidance out there in detail to tell wannabe pilots or pilots in general what to look for, how to, how to do a good pre-flight, how to do a good pre-planning session. It's not out there. So as I'm gathering all these, this information together, maybe we'll have a basis for a good checklist for everybody. But please do a good pre-planning session, you know, including the weather here, there, and everything in between. Do a good pre-flight on your airplane. And then after you take off, put that head on a swivel, keep it moving, keep your eyes moving and fly safely. To listen or watch more episodes of this show, go to FlightSafetyDetectives.com, the Flight Safety Detectives YouTube channel, or your favorite place to listen to podcasts. To contact John and Greg about the show, send them an email at FlightSafetyDetectives at gmail.com. And remember, for aviation insurance needs, contact Avemco Insurance at Avemco.com or give them a call at 888 888- 879-0389. Mention Flight Safety Detectives and receive a 5% discount. Thanks for listening to the Flight Safety Detectives and remember to always fly safe.